Have you ever wanted to dig up a piece of the early universe and hold it up to the light? On today's podcast, we're diving into the search for some of the oldest stars to see what they have to say about the universe following the Big Bang and just how the star stuff we're all made of came to be. We don't really dig in the soil or in the sand in the desert, we dig in the sky. Astronomer Dr. Anna Friebel is an assistant professor of physics at MIT and author of Searching for the Oldest Stars. She looks for and studies stars that are almost as old as the universe itself. So we are looking back in time by simply studying the grandfathers and all our stellar ancestors. <laughs> and um, that really resembles like the work that archaeologists do on Earth. It certainly also takes a while to un uncover all these objects, but then they tell us a whole lot about the, the cosmic past. And that's why we call this kind of work stellar archaeology. Where do you begin looking for the oldest stars in the universe? A first thought might be to take a cue from George Lucas. When people hear about old cosmic objects, they usually think um, that these are galaxies that must be very, very far away. And yes, there are very, very far away galaxies, and they're very old. But since light travels at a constant speed, if you want to look at galaxies that are far, far away, you can't help but see them as they were a long time ago. The light that we see of that galaxy today has been traveling for billions of years to us, so we actually see the galaxy when it was young, um, in the early universe, but by now it of course would be old and maybe it, you know the galaxy doesn't even exist anymore. What we do is complementary to this uh, work. We indeed want to find these very old stars, possibly from the second or third generation of stars in the universe. And um, there are a few tricks that, that we're using. Our stars are actually still around and in the Milky Way. They're not very far away at all few thousand light years or so. So these stars are practically our next door neighbors, and they likely haven't gone the way of the dodo in the relatively short time it takes for their light to reach us. But how do you tell how old a star is in the first place? We can sometimes measure the age, but usually we, we just uh, determine the chemical composition. Just like all of us, stars retain the imprints of the processes that affect them over their lives. Chemical composition, how much of each element is present, can tell you something about what that star has gone through since it formed. So the first step is measuring these chemical abundances, and luckily that information is encoded in starlight itself. There are two ways to study cosmic objects. You can take images and uh, what you get from the images are essentially brightnesses and positions and a few other things. This complementary method called spectroscopy where we split the starlight or the galaxy light up into the rainbow colors. A prism splits white light into a rainbow of colors, each one from blue to red corresponding to a different wavelength of light. When you use a prism together with a telescope, the light from each pinpoint of a star is spread out into a rainbow in just the same way. And if you look closely enough, you'll see tiny dark lines at very specific wavelengths. When we record that kind of rainbow, we actually see that uh, certain parts of certain colors are missing. And they're missing because atoms in the star's atmosphere 
are wiggling around, the electrons are wiggling around in the atom and they're absorbing certain frequencies of light which correspond to certain wavelengths. The light at those wavelengths is being snapped up by those wiggling electrons in the atoms in the star, and that's a smoking gun for a particular chemical composition. From the non-existent or the reduced uh, flux at these colors, we can deduce um, how much of each element is present in the star. Um, that's how we, in principle, determine the chemical composition of, of stars, and that gives you, of course, um, a whole new range of information. So now that we can measure the chemical composition of a given star, how does that help us understand how old that star might be? For that, we need to know something about the formation of different elements in the early universe. Just where did all that star stuff come from? So there are many elements in the periodic table and right at the top are hydrogen and helium. And they have been produced in the Big Bang. Actually, during the hot phase of the Big Bang, protons and neutrons were floating around and um, protons are just hydrogen atoms. And if you put two protons and two neutrons together, you get a helium nucleus. So the universe back then consisted of 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, and just a sprinkle of lithium atoms. That was was all produced in the Big Bang, and um, all the other elements were only created at later times. The recipe begins with the lightest elements, which are also the most abundant. To get anything heavier, you need some way of combining, that is, fusing, these building blocks together. You need stars. Stars shine all day and all night long, and that takes energy, and that energy needs to be generated. So nuclear fusion going on in the center of every star um, provides that kind of energy. But only elements up to iron can actually be fused. Fusing two hydrogen atoms together to form helium, or three heliums to form carbon, or two carbons to form neon, all of these fusion reactions produce energy to fuel the star. But once you get to iron, an atom that's very tightly bound together, all of that changes. If you want to fuse two iron atoms together, you're not going to get any energy out, but you have to put energy in, and of course the star doesn't want to do that. Uh, that's why the star will eventually blow up as a supernova because the energy source is lost. But during the supernova explosion, which is one of the most energetic events in the universe, um, additional elements are created, namely all the ones from the bottom half of the periodic table. Stars can't make any elements heavier than iron in the course of their normal, fusion-sustained lives. So once their fuel has been exhausted, they're in trouble. Luckily for us, the fireworks that follow are so energetic that heavier elements are formed in the aftermath and dispersed. The formation of the heavy elements is actually really interesting because it doesn't work through the fusion processes. So uh, the universe had to come up with a different way to create very, very heavy atoms. And the way it works is you take, for example, an iron atom and you bombard it with neutrons. Um, the question, of course, is immediately where, where can we get neutrons and especially where can we get tons of neutrons, literally tons of neutrons, um, in, in, a, in a very short time scale. And there are two uh, spots uh, in, in, in the cosmos where you can get a very strong neutron flux. When, when a star dies and becomes a supernova, what, what's happening in the core is that the iron core that, that, is, that has built up during a stellar lifetime uh, implodes and it turns into a neutron star. 
So that's just a, a ginormous uh, ball of, of neutrons and that's very heavily packed. And in the formation uh, process of this neutron star, a lot of neutrons are released. And so um, you have um, iron from that imploding iron core um, in the vicinity. And so these iron atoms get bombarded with neutrons and that means that this poor little iron atom swells really it becomes really big but it's very um, radioactive so it decays back through various uh, decay processes and voila you have yourself uh, a heavy element like europium for example and so if you bombard just enough iron nuclei you can get all the heavy elements in the periodic table including silver and gold and platinum and tungsten and and whatever else you like and and so then that that's one um, site for for heavy element production as violent as they are, supernovae are an important generator for the heavy elements in the universe, without which we wouldn't be around studying the cosmos today. There's a second, perhaps equally important and equally violent sounding process that also releases literal tons of neutrons. What happens when two of these stellar remnants collide? There is another possibility, it's called neutron star merger. So if it just happens to be the case that two stars were orbiting each other and one after another they exploded as supernovae and, and the neutron stars left over are still orbiting each other despite these massive explosions. Then um, if you fast forward um, quite some time, <laughs> they will eventually uh, actually coalesce because they're losing a little bit of gravitational energy as they are um, orbiting each other and they will eventually merge to form one giant uh, neutron star. And in the process of this merger, this collision, obviously we're dealing again with a lot of neutrons and um, uh, instead of iron atoms you can also start with just uh, neutrons and bombard more neutrons onto your neutron and uh, so you can build again heavy elements there you have it. From hydrogen and helium in the Big Bang, to elements up to iron in the cores of stars, to all the heavy elements in supernovae and neutron star mergers, we have a pretty good handle on how all the elements in the periodic table came to be. Now, how can we use this information to figure out which stars are older than others? We try to think of stars like, um, you know, our um, ancestry tree, and, and we talk about generations there as well. Right. With every generation we go one level back up. It did not take very long for all elements to build up over time. It, it, um, so we, in the oldest stars we really do find all the elements in the periodic table right there. So the universe really knew from, from the earliest stars onwards how to make all the elements. And then since then just every stellar generation has created a little bit more of all the elements and it's been building up um, until today and it's going to uh, progress in the future of course as well and because all the elements have been created successively piece by piece uh, throughout cosmic time we just look for the stars with the least amounts of heavy elements in them and that tells us that they have formed very early in the universe when there simply hadn't been enough stars and stellar generations to produce all that material. If heavy elements are produced little by little in each generation of stars, then it stands to reason that stars with very few heavy elements must have formed early on. But what kinds of stars are we talking about here and how have they managed to survive when so many others have lived and died in that same time? 
these stars are low mass stars so they are less massive than the sun maybe 0.6 or 0.7 or 0.8 solar masses and that means that they are um, using up their fuel namely the hydrogen and helium really really sparsely and that means that they're evolving very very slowly and only after something like 13 or 14 billion years now they're actually still burning hydrogen to helium so that is that is kind of the basic state for a star to gain uh, energy for 90% of its life. So these guys are just really really efficient and they're just sitting around pretty much waiting for us to to point a telescope at them. All the heavy elements that we find in them, for example, iron and carbon and magnesium and calcium, they were not formed in the star itself. But the star inherited those atoms from the birth gas cloud from which it formed um, because they were put into that gas cloud by the previous generation of stars that exploded as supernova. Prior to the formation of the very first stars, the universe consisted of just hydrogen and helium and only with the first generations all the other elements uh, suddenly uh, entered, entered the universe and, and actually changed its conditions um, along the way. So we can essentially reconstruct what came out of these first generation supernova and that's a really really neat idea. If you find the right star, one that burns slowly and efficiently and is in it for the long haul, it can tell you what came out of the very first stellar explosions in the universe. A neat idea indeed, and one that illustrates for Freebel the nuance of the scientific process itself. Doing science has actually a lot to do with what artists do, I believe. We take the evidence that we have at a given time and we try to put it together and usually we we think about um, processes and formation scenarios pretty much in our head and then we try to either run computer simulations or we we collect data that might support that kind of idea and we try to piece together the puzzle what what we thought up in our heads with scientific evidence the analyses that we do um, no matter if that's physics astronomy biology or anything else it really just gives you a bunch of numbers right its analysis always ends up with a number but the number doesn't actually tell you as such besides maybe it's 4.3 or 4.4, 4.5. My old stars, all, all the work that I've been done so far uh, by myself and with my colleagues, they give us a whole bunch of numbers. How much of each element was present at what time in the universe? That's a whole bunch of numbers if you think about it. But what we try to do is we try to figure out where did these elements come from and what processes produce them and in what objects could this have occurred and so we are we're writing the story um, but again it is always based on the numbers that are provided to us one way or another and what happens when you get new numbers that don't quite fit the story you've put together Freebel has plenty of experience with that too and those shakeups can sometimes lead to an unexpected breakthrough. Now sometimes, you know, you go to the telescope and you make, you find something unexpected which means, oh, you get a new set of numbers and they don't really fit into the picture that you've been developing um, until now. And that is exactly what has happened to us recently because we observed stars in this tiny little dwarf galaxy 
my student went to the telescope and um, he Skyped me in the middle of the night. Anna, you have to look at this, you have to look at this, you know, is, is, is that something wrong or is that something really exciting? And, and um, in many cases, something's gone wrong, but in this case, everything was correct. <laughs> Seven of the nine brightest stars in Reticulum 2, an old dwarf galaxy orbiting the Milky Way, showed a surprising enrichment in heavy elements, suggesting that a single rare event had left its mark. We found um, that these stars have a completely different abundance pattern, a very, very different signature, namely one that shows huge overload of these heavy elements in that tiny dwarf galaxy. Something that we had not expected in our wildest dreams, um, but that's what we found and that signature was present in multiple stars. That's a very strong sign that we did not do anything wrong, but that what we're seeing is real. Yeah, then there was not much sleeping after that <laughs> because we had to make a lot of tests. These chemical signatures are not consistent with the typical narrative. They were not produced in a supernova. Instead, they seem to be consistent with some other source, like a rare neutron star merger, an event not previously proven to be important in the early universe. That was very, very different from what we found in all the other dwarf galaxies. So we have a new set of numbers, which means we have to change our thinking. It can be very hard to change your mind, but if you have uh, exciting new evidence and it's not that hard and and uh, nature really leads you on on the right path of, of understanding what uh, what what happened uh, back then and as it turns out in this particular case it has really um, changed my way of thinking by about 180 degrees on on you know certain topics especially related to heavy element formation. And yes, our story is changing and we now think that these heavy elements are probably not primarily um, produced by supernovae in the early universe, but by neutron star mergers. So the point to take away here is that actually um, star formation and element production and, and the evolution of various cosmic uh, objects are really closely connected. And if one little piece is missing somewhere, then the house of cards is, is a bit of a wonky one and, and might fall apart. Or in turn, if you find that missing piece, it suddenly all falls into place. That sense of interconnectedness and puzzle solving is exactly what attracted Freebill to this field in the first place. What really drew me to it is that it combined all sorts of different aspects, uh, namely, well, stellar astronomy, so stars, but also element formation, and that also involves a lot of nuclear physics, which I also found very interesting. And then, of course, you need to know about stellar evolution, you need to know about the Milky Way because these stars reside in the Milky Way today. Um, you can throw in dwarf galaxies because we now find old stars in dwarf galaxies and the dwarf galaxies themselves orbit in the Milky Way. And so it's just, it brings together a whole bunch of different subtopics that I all find really fascinating. And it's the perfect synergy, if you ask me. And it, it's just kind of my thing. As for the search for the oldest stars, the future looks pretty bright. Of course, we don't really know how many second generation stars are left but uh, we have we have maybe half a dozen that that plausibly are second generation stars and then progressively more that are of, of the subsequent generations we will always need more data but having having half a dozen means that our search techniques are working and while it takes patience <laughs> we we are getting there 
Uh, luck favors the prepared, and we're very prepared, and we're often lucky. <laughs> You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. I'm Meg Rosenberg. Thanks for joining us, and you can find more information on the oldest stars and the formation of elements on our website, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com.